You know, I remember as a little boy that uh, several days before Christmas, our dad would pass out money to me and my brother Lonnie so that we could buy presents for uh, members of the family. And uh, that was fine by me. I considered myself a member of the family, so buying myself a little something seemed appropriate. (laughs) Mom never seemed to understand that truth. But I remember when I got a little older, I I actually started uh, feeling sorry for Dad a little bit. I said, think about this. He's giving me money in order to actually buy him a gift. (laughs) And I really didn't understand that. As I said, felt a little sorry for him until I became a dad. (laughs) And I can still remember (laughs) handing out some money to the kids so that they could buy gifts for the family and me a little something as well. You know what the Bible says about our God? James the Apostle says, Every good gift and every perfect act of giving comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness. There's not even a shadow of turning. Let me say that again. Every good gift and every perfect act of giving comes down from the Father. Where our passage this morning that we're looking at talks about God's perfect gift. The season of Advent we are focusing on God's perfect gift. And isn't it amazing that God's perfect gift to us was the gift of himself? He gave himself. Our Advent series, as you know, is about the promised one. We are looking at that passage. And if you would, in Isaiah chapter 9, incredible messianic passage, but in particular, one verse that gives Incredible titles of this one who is promised, who is coming as the Messiah. It's God's gift. God's gift in Jesus. Unto us a child is born. Unto us the Son is given. Isn't that amazing? A child is born... But in the birth of a child, the eternal son is given. The gift of himself, the promised one. The first Sunday of Advent, we looked at the title, Wonderful Counselor. That is that the promised one is the all-wise one. Last week, 
We saw that he is the mighty God, El Gabor, which means the hero God. He is the all-powerful one. This morning, we want to look at this title given to Messiah, the promised one. He's called the Everlasting Father. He is the all-loving one. He is the all-wise one. He's the all-powerful one. He's the all-loving one, all wrapped up into one. Here's how God spoke through Isaiah, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now notice, we're very well aware that this is a prophecy of the child who is to be born. And we know that the child who would be born is Jesus. He is born as the Son of God. But notice what the title here is for this promised one. The Everlasting Father. Now, that seems to be a, a strange title, doesn't it? Especially a title for a baby. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and call his name Everlasting Father. That's a strange title. And actually, when you first think about it, it there seems to even be a theological problem here, doesn't there? Because the Bible is very clear that the God that we worship is a triune God. He is a trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. But also we know that in this trinity of unity, there is diversity. And so that means that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. But here, the Son of God is called the Everlasting Father. Now, what's the, what's the answer to this seeming contradiction? Well, it's no contradiction at all because everlasting father as it's translated in most of our bibles is literally from the the hebrew it would be father of eternity father of eternity the word father in hebrew of course can mean your father it can be, mean your grandfather because there's no term for grandfather in Hebrew or great-grandfather. Or the term father can also mean the originator or the source. 
And that is exactly what is meant here, this title of Jesus. It means that Jesus, the son who would be born through the child, is the source of all that is eternal. The prophet Micah, he was a contemporary of Isaiah's, first spoke about this. He was the first one to sing the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. What did he say? What was read this morning by Rose? Verse 2 of Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're so little, you would be insignificant. Just, just a village, just a dot in the road, so to speak. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Notice, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, meaning from eternity past. The message here is that the eternal one entered time. That, that's the, the profound thought here. The one who is the ancient of days, whose going forth is from eternity past. The one who was before time, the one in whom time even exists, he will enter into the time that he created. Is your mind starting to flip a little over this? I'll tell you one thing. I preach many things I don't understand. But I'm glad I have a God that I can trust. Who's too big for this finite mind of mine. But I can still worship him. And know that he is this eternal one. This child of Bethlehem. Notice is going to bring together time and eternity. Going to bring together time and eternity. He is from ancient of days. But he will be born of the virgin in the little town of Bethlehem. And when he is born, he will be the father of eternity. Jesus brought together time and eternity. That's what I want us to think about this morning. Jesus... As the everlasting Father, the Father of eternity, He brings together time and eternity. Now let's consider this. Jesus brought together time and eternity by His birth. By His birth. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, time was invaded by eternity. Now, certainly, we love the stories Matthew and Luke tell us about the birth 
of the Christ child. We love to celebrate those every Christmas season. We love the message of the, the magi, the, the shepherds. The magi who came seeking the king of the Jews. The angels who came to herald the birth of the Christ child. Matthew and Luke are wonderful in that account. But it is the Apostle John who startles us. He, he was the last of the, the gospel writers. Probably wrote his gospel in the last decade of the first century. When he was a very, very old man. And when John talks about this coming of the everlasting father... Here's how he describes it. If you have your Bibles, you might want to look with me. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Very familiar to you, but let's enjoy it again for the very first time. How about that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The term word here, as you, many of you know, logos, meaning the message, the concept, the idea, the essence of something. In the beginning was this eternal message and messenger, the word. The word was with God, and the word with here means face to face with God. And the Word was God. What are we told here by John? John teaches us that Jesus is the infinite God. But then notice as John keeps writing this, this opening of his gospel, he says also that Jesus is not just the infinite God, Jesus is also incarnate God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The infinite God became the incarnate God. But then notice John goes on to say in verse 18, this infinite God who became the incarnate God is for those who believe in him the intimate God. Verse 18. And this is his fullness. We have received grace from grace. Read on verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now the key thought no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who is this only God who's at the Father's side? This is the word that was with God and was God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory of God in him. What is he saying about Jesus? He's telling us that Jesus of Nazareth 
came so that we might know God. That we might know him personally and have fellowship with him. My friend, listen. People talk a lot about God. Name God comes up in all kinds of conversations, not necessarily the best one. Name God comes up in all kinds of gatherings that have nothing to do with his kingdom. But I want you to know this this morning. The only way that anyone can ever know the God of heaven and earth is in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where you meet God. You meet him face to face in Jesus of Nazareth. He's the everlasting father. Friends, what a, what a mystery we commemorate here at Advent, right? But what a revelation we celebrate. That when we could not go to God, God came to us. What a God we serve. He's the everlasting Father. Jesus, that baby in a manger, is the everlasting Father. And he brought together time and eternity in his birth. But now I want you to notice with me something else. Jesus, as the everlasting Father, brought together time and eternity, not only in his birth, but also in his death. Also in his death. You see, the sovereign one of eternity came to be the eternal Savior. The one who had existed from all eternity past came in time to become the eternal Savior of all who would believe in him. He was born in Bethlehem, but his destination was Calvary. Many of you know I've shared on several occasions that when I was in college for two years, I, I served as a security guard and guide in a Christian art gallery on campus. I was eminently qualified for that position. Two reasons. Number one, I owned a blue suit. And number two, I was tall enough to push the button that would call the police if something happened. I was qualified. Not just anybody could have that job. So for two years, I was a guide and a guard in this sprawling gallery, 37 different galleries inside the art gallery. But my favorite gallery was the gallery of the Dutch masters. Because in the early Renaissance, they captured a way of creating a paint and using the paint to literally put light into the painting. They were called the artist of light. And one of those paintings... I remember so well. It is a painting by one of the Dutch masters, 
and it portrays the little boy Jesus helping his father, Joseph, in the shop, the carpenter shop. Evidently, there's a project that's going, it's, it's way up into the evening. And so here is the little boy, Jesus, helping his father. And in order to help his father, he's holding up, he's holding up a lantern. Now, whether they had lanterns or lamps, the Dutch masters had him holding a lantern. But here's the beauty of it. As you look at the face of Jesus and the lantern is held up, the light streams through the canvas, but the lantern causes the shadow of a cross to fall upon the boy's face. So there he is, holding the lantern while his father works in the wood shop. But already upon him is the shadow of the cross. And my friend, I want you to know that Jesus lived his entire life beneath the shadow of the cross. No one forced Jesus to go to that cross. He said, for this cause I have entered the world. For this purpose have I come. And what shall I say now? Father, deliver me from this hour. No. Father, glorify yourself. And glorify your son. My friend, Jesus did not have to be flung on that cross. He crawled up on that cross willingly. Because that was his destination all along. He was born, yes, as the everlasting father to reveal the father. He was born to reveal eternity. But his mission was to come so that we could share eternity with him. That's why he came. The Son of God became the Son of Man so the sons and daughters of men could become the sons and daughters of God. My friends, only one was both God and man. And only one could bring God and man together. Listen very carefully. Listen very carefully. There's only one who both God and man can satisfy the requirements of God and man. Jesus satisfied the requirements of God and mankind. What are those requirements? These. God required a sacrifice, we required a substitute. Only Jesus could do that. And on the cross, Jesus, the God-man, was lifted up between heaven and earth that he might bring heaven and earth together through his suffering and death. On the cross, Jesus became... A sacrifice for God. 
That is that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice. God's eternal and perfect justice demands the punishment of sin and sinners. Let me say that again. God being perfect and His justice being perfect, His perfect justice demands the punishment of sin and sinners. The sentence of justice on sin is one sentence, the Bible says. The Bible says this, and it is a just sentence on sin. The wages of sin is death. Physical death entered this creation by Adam and Eve's sin, and so death passed upon all men. But friend, it is spiritual death, which is the penalty of sin. Eternal separation from God. Eternally unable to return to the Father. Outer darkness where Jesus himself said there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You say that's terrible. Yes, it's terrible, but it's terribly true. Some things that are terrible are true. You say God is a God of love. Yes, but His love cannot violate His holiness. Amen. You say, but God's a God of mercy. Yes, He's a God of mercy, but His mercy cannot thwart His justice. But friend, hear this. Hear this. And here's the mystery, and here's the majesty of Calvary at the cross. God satisfied his own justice. What we could not satisfy, God himself satisfied. In the form of his son, God the son accepted the penalty of sin. He took the full outpouring of the just and holy wrath of God on himself. He satisfied his own justice as God. God the Father accepted the sacrifice of God the Son. And the Bible says he was satisfied. When Jesus said, it is finished, God was satisfied. How do we know that God was satisfied with what Jesus did for your sins? How do you know that what Jesus did was enough? Because on the third day, God put his stamp of approval on his son when he raised him from the dead to be a savior who all who will come to the Father by him. The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, saying that sinners like me and you can come back to the Father. We can come back to the Eden of paradise one day. And it's through the door, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He satisfied the requirements of God. God required a sacrifice for sin. And Jesus on the cross died also as a substitute for sinners. A sacrifice to God, but a substitute for sinners. I hope there are no people here this morning. I hope there are none that will hear this message. Who will be so deceived as to make a statement such as this, I'll take my chances. I'll take my chances. Friend, that's no chance at all. What chance does a sinner have in the presence of a holy God? None whatsoever. We're so used to hearing about plea bargains, we think God gives them. We're so used to backroom deals being made, we think God Almighty enters into them. He does not. There's no cutting a deal with this judge. Why is there no cutting a deal with this judge? Because his son cut a covenant on the cross and bled and died for a holy God and for guilty sinners. Praise his name. Who is the judge of all the universe? You know what the Bible says? Jesus said it. The Father has committed to His Son all judgment. When the Bible talks about judgment day, that's a judgment with Judge Jesus on the throne. But let me tell you about this judge. This judge laid aside His royal robes of eternal glory And he was wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. And he took the form of a servant. And he lived a life we could not live perfectly for God for 33 years. And then he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This judge substituted himself for us, the criminals. This is the gospel. The judge took our place. He took our place. Jesus is the everlasting father. He's the God man. Peter, when he was an old man, thinking about his Lord Jesus, he wanted us to understand why Jesus came and what he did. And Peter said this, that Jesus died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Friend, I want to tell you, the Son can get you to the Father. You come to Jesus, you'll be all right. Through him, you can reach the Father. There's not a church that can take you there. There's not a sacrament that can take you there. There's not a denomination that can take you there. There's not an effort that can get you there. There's not another way but the way, the truth, and the life. That way is Jesus. And Jesus is a Savior to all who come to Him. He can get you to the Father. Have you come to Him? Have you come?
as a hopeless, helpless sinner. Praying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Is your religion from start to finish the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ? That cross of Jesus was only seven or eight feet tall. But how far it reached. It reached from darkness to light. It reached from death to life. It reached from hell to heaven. That's how far that cross of Jesus reaches. It crosses over the great chasm between holy God and sinful man. And in the one on that cross is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The cross of Jesus reached from time to eternity. Friends, Jesus brought time and eternity together in his birth and his death. But let me give you just this final thought as we close. Jesus brings time and eternity together by his life. By his life. What's the name of the child to be born, the son to be given, the everlasting father? Jesus was born for us. Jesus died for us. But praise God, he ever lives for us. He is alive. And we are saved by this living Savior. Paul said this in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Amen. If he saved us by his death and by his resurrection, which are historical, how much more does he save us by his eternal life? which is actual and never-ending. We don't have a dead Savior. We have a living Savior. Jesus is alive. Amen. He's alive. Jesus lives for his people. Jesus lives among his people. Thank God he sends the Holy Spirit when we believe, and he lives in his people. I remember my junior year in college, we ministerial students in our junior year would be assigned to a church to serve on the weekends. So we'd learn about the local church. I had high hopes for one of the very prominent churches in Greenville that I'd be able to serve. Evidently, the dean thought a little differently of my ability. And he sent me to Welcome Baptist Church, 
seven miles outside a stoplight town called Central South Carolina. That's where he sent me. So I went to Welcome Baptist, and I served there on weekends. But let me tell you, first Sunday I was there, pastor said, you might want to meet with some of the college students that meet downstairs in a fellowship hall. I thought, oh, okay, maybe I can go down, help these untutored college students some more. And I went down there, and there were 40 students down there from Clemson University. Oh, yeah. And I took a seat in the back, and I, I started listening to the leader teach these college students from Clemson. And I was amazed at what I was hearing. And I came to find out that this was a formation of a group that met on Clemson University called the Forever Generation. Now, that was a real cool term back about 1976, 77. The forever generation, because the idea was if you come to Jesus, you enter his forever family and your generation never ends. You're the forever generation. And I want to tell you, for the next nine months, I was blessed to get to know those students, be discipled by the leader, grow in grace. And you know, one of those leaders, well, not one of the leaders, one of the men about my age, after he had been discipled a couple of years, he went and started another forever generation group on the college campus of Georgia Tech. And while he was at Georgia Tech, he met and led to Christ and discipled a pre-med student by the name of Bill Gowder. And Bill Gowder ended up marrying a girl from my youth group in Ohio. And after I came here as pastor, Bill Gowder came to serve on staff here. Nine to ten years, now he's the pastor at First Baptist Friendsville. And a dear friend, many of you know him. How amazing God's connection of that. But my friends, you just never know what God's going to do when you get connected to the forever generation. Amen. And how do you do that? Through the everlasting Father. Amen. Through coming to the Lord Jesus. And you will find this, that when you trust Jesus as your Savior, He becomes in the perfect sense everything a father can be. What does Jesus become to us who trust him? Well, he becomes like a father. Jesus becomes our protector. He watches over us. He knows us all by name. Like a father, Jesus is our protector. Like a father, Jesus is our provider. But my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. 
He is Jehovah Jireh. Like a father, Jesus is my protector. He's my provider. Like a father, Jesus is my professor. I've told you before, I was amazed how much my dad learned when I went to college. He learned so much. But what is Jesus? He's our rabbi. He's our teacher. Like a father, Jesus is my protector. He's my provider. He's my professor. And thank God, he's my pattern. What did Jesus say? Like a bad dad? Do what I say, not what I do? No, what did he say? Follow me. Amen. Follow me. What's Jesus saying to every disciple every day? Follow me. What a difference would happen in our life if every waking morning we could imagine Jesus at the end of our bed saying, Good morning, my child. I hope you've had a good night's sleep. Now, follow me. Jesus, like a father, is my protector. He's my provider. He's my professor. He's my pattern. And Jesus is my partner. What did he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold, I am with you always. There's many places a Christian can be. Many things a Christian can be. But one thing no Christian can ever be is alone. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. Because Jesus lives forever. He is our everlasting Father. And how wonderful He holds us with His everlasting love. How many times I walked one of the kids or a couple of them across this parking lot while some of you crazy people were in a hurry to get to lunch. <laughs> How many times were I walking with one or two of them and they let go of my hand? They let go. But guess what? I didn't let go. How many times have we let go of Jesus' hand? Even this week. Praise God, he's never let go of ours. How do I know that? Well, listen to Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who gave them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why? Because I and my Father are one. Amen. Amen. The everlasting Father.
old little town of Bethlehem. But a pretty big thing happened there. The everlasting Father came as the Son given and the child born. Father, I thank you for Jesus who is the originator and the completer of our faith. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did leave the splendor of heaven. You stepped across time and eternity and came not just to the earth, but to be humbled, carried like a baby, wrapped as a newborn. You lived the life as our substitute. You died our death as our substitute. Lord Jesus, I thank you that though they wrapped you in swaddling clothes when they took you from the cross, you came through those grave clothes with life everlasting. And Lord, I pray now and ask that everyone in the sound of my voice who hears this message will look to Jesus, the everlasting, eternal sacrifice for God and substitute for sinners. Look to faith and with faith in Jesus and be saved. I pray this, Lord. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen.